Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at www.mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today we have a, a special edition episode. We are recording at the Catholic Medical Association annual meeting in Orlando, Florida in early October. And with us today will be, for the brunt of the interview, will be uh, Louis Brown, Executive Director of Christ Medicus Foundation and our sponsoring organization. But we're going to put together some interesting uh, information about religious freedom. We're going to combine it with a story, a follow-up on Megan Kraft, a PA who you heard about last year who lost her job trying to follow Catholic ethical and religious directives in a Catholic hospital. We will then also have a, a short interview with Steve White, head of the Healthcare Policy Committee for uh, the Catholic Medical Association, and fit, fit it in with the topics we're going to do with Lewis today. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this show because one of the things I get to talk to with patients a lot of times is why religious freedom is important. What is it? Why is it important? I've definitely had people in the past say, what does it even mean to provide Catholic health care and why does that need to be protected? So we've got a couple salient examples and hopefully we can get into the nitty gritty with Lewis today as well. Salient and representative. <laughs> uh, so we're going to break away now. Uh, Chris is interviewing Megan Kraft and we're going to catch up on that story. Many of our avid listeners remember from a few months ago, we did a terrific episode with Megan Kraft talking about some of the struggles she had with religious liberty and religious freedom uh, in her workplace. And we're live today at the annual meeting of the Catholic Medical Association, and I've been able to grab Megan from some of the terrific presentations that have been going on to give us an update on where life has taken her since that episode. So Megan, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be on the show again and really excited to be at the CMA conference. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. This is the first conference post-pandemic and it's been terrific to see people alive and well and in person again. I don't know about you, but I, I would say if I never Zoomed again, that'd be perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I, I don't have that option practicing telehealth, so. Right. Well, that's a good segue. So Megan, give our, uh, give our listeners sort of a quick update on what happened and that'll entice them to go listen to your episode and then what's been going on since that big event in your life. Yeah, so um, as your listeners might recall, um, I guess it was about two years ago that I was um, terminated from my position as a family medicine uh, PA at um, Providence Health and Services in Oregon. I was terminated due to my refusal to provide or refer for services that were contrary to my Catholic faith, my conscience, um, as well as the... Um, as well as my employment contract. Right, which is really interesting uh, for, you know, those of you kind of legally interested listeners. If we take the religious liberty part out of it, really it was a contractual thing. You had a contract that said, I'll not do these things that your employer offered you. You signed it, and then your employer terminated you because you wouldn't do those things that you said you wouldn't do. That's really not a religious story. It just happens to be those things involved your faith. And then to make it an even more interesting story, you were working for a Catholic organization. So listeners, you really have to look up that old episode to really get sort of the, the meat on the bone for that. But regardless, you were terminated. Uh, you and your husband took that and moved on. So tell us what life meant after that. Yeah, so actually shortly after my termination, um, I attended the um, education program in Omaha, Nebraska at the St. Paul VI Institute to be trained both in Creighton um, instruction as well as a NAPRO medical consultant. So I knew that God had a plan even though I wasn't able to operate in the capacity as a PA, um, not having a supervising physician. So there was definitely a time of, of this vocational crisis of like, God, where are you leading me and our family? I knew that he was faithful um, and would continue to be faithful, but there definitely was that 
um, time of trust and surrender um, and seeing what he had in store. And so now that must have been tough for you. But now for me, it's always been really easy to understand God's will. I usually get an email <laughs> in paragraph form that explains everything. Right. I don't. I, I like neon signs. I, I yeah. don't think I've ever gotten a neon sign. Um, but it was shortly after that that um, actually um, a fellow Catholic in our um, in our parish recommended that I look into my Catholic doctor. Mm. Um, I'd heard about the organization, but didn't know much about it and was just blown away by what they offered, um, both for patients as well as providers. So I am now uh, working very part-time through my Catholic doctor. I offer primary care services, women's health, NAPRO technology, as well as instruction in the Creighton model system for women and couples. So Megan, you said very part-time, and I happen to know why that is, but why don't you help our listeners understand why it's very part-time, because you're busy doing other stuff as well. Yeah, so again, this is where like God's plan is way better than our own. So kind of backing up, after um, I was fired, I was worried that I would not be able to find work and actually had some challenges finding work locally. You know, actually, um, as, as you know, I've, I've spoken publicly on a number of occasions about my experience being terminated from a Catholic hospital system due to my insistence on following the dictates of my Catholic faith. And this came up actually in multiple conversations with prospective employers. And so for my family, there was definitely a time of immense stress. Yeah, and I'm sure you were, you were labeled as a troublemaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had some explaining to do. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, so I, there was really a time where I was like, will I be able to find a practice that's supportive and conducive to me practicing in accord with my faith and conscience and how I believe is what I believe is truly best for my patients? And so my Catholic doctor was just fit the bill beyond what I could have um, imagined where, um, you know, I was able to start up uh, practicing and seeing patients again, working very closely with my collaborating supervising physician. um, And since leaving Providence have had um, another beautiful child. So now um, God has blessed our family with the ability for me to be primarily home with our two children, which is such a gift. Um, Lots of challenges, but so much fun and has really just brought so much joy into my heart, but the gift of my Catholic doctors that I've been able to keep up my medical practice and continue to serve my patients. So my Catholic doctor is uh, a remarkable telemedicine service, and the pandemic has made telemedicine really a household phrase. But give our listeners a sense of really what do we mean when we say telemedicine? And so what's that look like for you day in and day out with telemedicine? Yeah, so I see patients via Zoom um, through My Catholic Doctor. So patients can go onto the My Catholic Doctor website and search for providers, physicians, counselors, physical therapists, um, a variety of uh, healthcare providers that are licensed in their state and then uh, schedule an appointment online. And so I meet with my patients via Zoom and um, we're able to to um, really delve into so um, much of the of patient care in terms of treating really both mind, body, and spirit, really can take the time to spend with the patients, to listen to them, to pray with them and for them. And um, it's just been an immense blessing as a provider to be a part of an organization that um, not only provides authentically Catholic health care, and its mission is to provide it to everyone and make it accessible um, nationwide and internationally, but also as a provider to be supported and um, be able to collaborate and be part of a family with um, like-minded um, healthcare providers. Now, do you find, you know, you were traditional practice before, now you're telemedicine, which I guess in many ways is becoming the new traditional practice, but do you find uh, there's differences in what you're able to do or unable to do, and how does that work for you? Yeah, you know, overall, the, the services that I provide, um, many of them are able to be done via telehealth, but we have relationships with various laboratories and imaging centers um, and also collaboration with Mm. other providers locally for patients if I'm seeing them from out of state. And so really we're able to accomplish so much via via telehealth. And I think COVID has made this even more aware and both patients and providers are becoming aware of the utility. Yeah, I mean, I never thought of telemedicine before the pandemic or not in anything that resembles the degree that I do now. So I know listeners are wondering, uh, do, do you have the ethical constraints? Do you have the ethical minefields now that you had before? 
No, I do not. I am so incredibly grateful to work for an organization that affirms the um, the desire to practice and really the obligation to practice mm. in accordance with the moral teaching of the Catholic Church, the ethical and religious directives, mm. the catechism of the Catholic Church. And so this has been something that has been in- incredibly supportive and, and useful, um, both for me and patients. You know, I haven't encountered really any bioethical dilemmas in my mm. telehealth practice. I think a lot of patients are seeking out my Catholic doctor doctor mm. because um, it's Catholic and life affirming, but I have worked with a number of patients who aren't Catholic, but are looking for this type of care. Isn't that funny? They would end up on my Catholic yeah. doctor. Yeah. And then, you know, so you went through what I'm sure was a terrible challenge uh, for you, for your husband, for your family. Just listening to you, I'm sure there were times when you felt like your career was probably over. It turns out it wasn't. It was just going to make a turn. So um, there are a lot of medical students and nursing students and other providers at various points in their career listening to us. What uh, and, and the couple of minutes we have left, what advice do you have for them if they find themselves in the position that you found yourself in? Yeah, well, first I would reassure them they are not alone. Um, I know I really did feel um, alone initially, but God has provided so many connections to um, amazing individuals and organizations that are there to support you. So there's so, so many resources from a legal perspective. Um, There are many resources from a Catholic bioethical standpoint, like National Catholic Bioethics Center. I would also encourage them to plug into the Catholic Medical Association and the plethora of resources and connections um, with other um, healthcare providers through CMA. Wow. Listeners, you heard it. Megan Kraft, uh, a a remarkable young professional, young woman, young mother. Um, She had a tough battle and she stuck to her guns and won and has prevailed by the grace uh, of our Lord. And we're lucky that that's the story. And I know that your patients, uh, my Catholic doctor, they are really the ones uh, that are the luckiest of all of this. So thank you for joining us again, Megan, on Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much. And before we go to our break, it's time for the medical trivia question of the day. Category, religion and COVID-19 vaccination. Ooh, everybody's back started tingling, right? Well, this is poll-based, so, um, and it's an August 2021 poll. Uh, what religious group, as broken out by the research company, had the highest vaccination rate for COVID? It's a multiple-choice question with uh, five options. Was it A, white evangelical Protestants, B, white non-evangelical Protestants, C, black Protestants, D, white Catholics, or E, Hispanic Catholics. This is the way they broke it out. Which group had the highest vaccination rate? And of course, you can also guess which group had the lowest vaccination rate. It's kind of interesting. And part two, when American Catholics were considered as one group, were they vaccinated at a higher rate or a lower rate than atheists and agnostics? That's just a good question. Yes or no. So you'll have to hang around to the end of the show to find out the answer, but we'll be back shortly with our guest, Lewis Brown, here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with our interview of Lewis Brown. He's a different kind of doctor, a jurist doctor, otherwise known as a lawyer. We're going to talk about religious freedom. He's executive director of Christ Medicus Foundation since 2014, and he actually took off 18 months to work with the Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights, but then he returned to the private sphere in 2019. CMF Cura was founded in 1997, as they say, to reclaim Christ-centered healthcare by reforming corporate and public policy to allow God's people a conscientious choice in selecting healthcare. He got his bachelor's degree in political economy at Michigan State University Law School at Howard University in DC. He's worked for a Republican congressman, a Democratic senator, an American Catholic conference, that's well-rounded, and also the Department of Health and Human Services. So he believes the ultimate mission of the Christ Medicus Foundation is to share the healing love of God in healthcare and to help build what St. John Paul II called a civilization of love and justice. So we'd like to start out, welcome back. It's not your first time. Thank you, Dr. McGovern. So what do you want our audience to know? What's the most important thing they should know about the Christ Medicus Foundation, our sponsors? The church exists to evangelize, 
and therefore it exists to share the love of Christ with every person. And we're seeking to do that in healthcare and to defend our religious freedom rights to do it and that of other Americans. And so if you take nothing else away, that's what we want them to know. Okay, and so that's in addition to the health sharing ministry, you guys also do a lot of lobbying and defending conscience rights, which well, is- Well, we try not, to, that's right, we try not to lobby, but we do seek to educate and we do seek to do what we can to promote religious freedom and medical conscience with policymakers, uh, with educational institutions, with Catholic healthcare institutions. It is so vitally important. Um, unfor unfortunately, uh, religious freedom is increasingly getting a bad rap from the popular culture. They don't understand that religious freedom is one of these uh, human and civil rights that is fundamental to human dignity and human freedom. And so we are out there educating the country including policymakers, including legislators, about the vital importance of religious freedom, particularly in healthcare. So what's the difference between education and lobbying? Right, I think for us, uh, education is making religious freedom as a value, as a good known with policymakers, with influencers uh, throughout the country. Uh, sometimes uh, the education is related to legislation that might be at the state level or at the federal level, uh, but sometimes it's not. And so, uh, you know, we have a limitation on what we can do as a nonprofit, uh, okay. but we try to do so, as much so as So lobbying we can. is when you're asking them to vote a certain way. Vote this way, pass this bill. A education is big is picture concepts. Broader, that's or, or right. How something applies. That's right. So you, we're using terms. I like a definition of terms. Now we're talking about what does religious freedom mean and how does it differ from freedom of conscience? Right, that's an excellent, really important question. Um, the freedom of conscience, as we understand it, and the, and the church is the best source for this, the freedom of conscience is the right to think, to act, to speak, to live consistent with what we believe as an individual to be right and just. For many, that includes religion. And when we think about relig religious freedom, we're talking about our, our ability, our freedom to think, to act, to love, to, to be consistent with our religious faith, consistent with our religious values. And so uh, the two overlap, but there is a difference. Um, when we think about it in the medical contents, of course, um, some people exercise their conscience uh, based on their religious beliefs. Other people exercise their conscience, not based on their religious beliefs, but based on uh, what they be, believe to be right and good and true, or we might say moral and ethical. So you, you could say that people would have plenty of beliefs based on their conscience that may be irrespective of religion, things that don't have necessarily a dogma behind them, but you're still allowed to have beliefs about what is right and wrong. That's right. There might be an exercise of conscience that's based on religious beliefs, but there also may not, there might be an exercise of conscience not. You know, we, we see that a lot in medicine where people talk about different ways of treating patients and different, you know, kind of the art of medicine and some strategies are better than others. So that's, that's one of the things I always like to reflect on is that we respect that people can have differences in opinion and you should be able to do what you believe is best. You know, one, one of the things that we're very interested in hearing from you about is in relation to conscience protection, how is that protected, if, if at all, in law? Sure, that's a, a great question. Um, and I can go from the general to the specific. So uh, conscience is protected to an extent with the First Amendment in the US Constitution, where our vital civil rights uh, are protected, our vital human rights are protected. And so the freedom of religion, uh, the freedom from establishment of religion, those uh, those rights are protected within the Constitution. Um, when it comes to the healthcare domain, um, we have certain federal conscience protections, federal law that protects the right of medical conscience and religious freedom. And so there's a there's a group of federal laws that are passed ever ever so often, uh, known as the Weldon Amendment, the Coates No Amendment, as well as the Church Amendment that broadly protect medical conscience. Uh, uh, across the board in virtually all of the healthcare industry. At the state level, we also have certain laws, the patchwork of laws in different states that on some level protect conscience and religious freedom. The other thing people should be aware of is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was passed with bipartisan support in the Clinton administration right. to broadly protect religious freedom across civil society. So sometimes it's best for us to learn about this with a story. And you've got some stories, and maybe you can share a little bit sure. about it. You mentioned that there's a, there was a Catholic medical student persecuted by the administration of her school for her pro-life beliefs. Right. What happened? Right. Um, and, and this is important. Conscience and religious freedom in healthcare is being attacked in the most 
pro-religious freedom states, the most pro-life states, and the most uh, the states that are most hostile to life and religious freedom. And so with this person, without going into too much detail, a medical student who, um, from, from, what I, from what I know, is extraordinarily virtuous and just is seeking to live her Catholic faith through the Ministry of Healthcare, um, was really persecuted by her administration because of her pro-life beliefs. And In what way was she persecuted? What did she experience? What she experienced, essentially, was a communication from this administration of this school's administration to her um, I would say more than once uh, in very direct ways that certain opportunities were not going to be available to her as a medical student uh, if she uh, persisted with what kind her, of opportunities her beliefs. certain rotations or letters of recommendation for postgraduate training? right right um, without again I'm trying to protect some right. level of her confidentiality Certainly. But from the best of my memory, I think she had concern about her short-term and long-term career pr uh, prospects in her state uh, because of what the administration was or was not going to do. And the sense that certain doors might be foreclosed to her as a medical student if she persisted with, w Almost with her Almost being beliefs. blackballed. That's, that, that's correct. And it, this was not, you know, it's very important to say this too. This was not something that was subliminal or that was implied. This was very direct. Stated. And I, and I think the other thing, too, Dr. McGovern, I, sh I shared a couple other stories. I'm happy to talk with you now. Oh, oh yeah. No. And then, you know, another one you mentioned about a Catholic physician and medical professor in trouble because he believed that men and women are different and are the only right. two sexes. No, it's un it was unbelievable. In the midst of this was all this is all has come out uh, it, just to me in the last 18 months. So this medical professor, one of the top in his field, in his state and in the country, um, was uh, proceeding along, mentoring students, teaching his courses, uh, an extraordinarily virtuous man. A, one of his medical students found out about his pro-life beliefs, and particularly his beliefs about human sexuality, uh, traditional human sexuality, raised it with the administration, and, and an inquiry was done. Now, uh, thanks be to God, the inquiry was resolved, and the physician was able to uh, continue in his uh, ongoing state as a medical professor at this public state school. Um, but this is in one of the, and I, I don't, again, want to protect the confidentiality sure. here, but, this, the, but two things. Number one, this was in one of the most pro-life states in the country, one of the most you know, so-called conservative yeah, states sure. in the country. And the fact that I can't even reveal who these people are because of greater threat uh, to their careers shows the, the climate that we're in right now oh, in yeah. America. It's the cancel culture that we right. recently had an That's episode right. about. Well, and you know, we got to hear from Megan earlier in this show, and her example is very salient of people who are really, their, their careers are in jeopardy and right. their jobs are in jeopardy. That's right. And I, I think many people might experience that to a lesser degree but feel that they might be all out on their own when in fact there are protections as you've identified in the law you know what what are some strategies for physicians medical professionals when they feel this type of you know really it's it's kind of discrimination right i think i would say there's four things um i think the number one thing um and i i, I really believe this is community particularly that is offered through the Catholic Medical Association, but spiritual community, social community, professional community, where they live with other Catholic medical professionals. Yes. Absolutely vital. I think that's the number one thing. Which we're experiencing here in Orlando, really for the first time in a big way in a couple years. Right. I mean, thank God. Just seeing people's faces <laughs> of getting back <laughs> right. together has just been just right. so moving. Yes. No, I can't, I can't say it enough. I think see, the Catholic Medical Association is such a gift. Uh, to its membership and to the country and to the church. And so I think being involved in CMA and ensuring that Catholic medical professionals have ongoing, active, spiritual, social, professional Catholic community where they live, I think that's the number one thing. The number two thing is, is for Catholic medical professionals to educate themselves about their rights. What does the law say on conscience, on religious freedom in their state uh, as they practice healthcare? What's the best way to do this, Lewis? Well, I think, I think there's two ways. I think, number one, um, I would encourage people to be at, on the Christ Medicus Foundation, um, uh, you know, our list, our email list, because we're constantly updating people about what the law is, what's going on, what's going on at the federal level, what's going at the state level. Um, I think secondarily, and I would say do both, go to the HHS Office of Civil Rights website, 
um, and be aware of the, the, both the civil rights obligations, but also the conscience protections for medical professionals, which are stated there for now. So that's why I was wondering if they pulled it with the new administration. No, thank God it has not been pulled, but sadly it's something we're going to have to watch like a hawk. We've got to support this administration when they're right, but oppose them, uh, their actions. When well, well right. something else you sent us when we were preparing for this show was that, you know, the Biden administration, you know, reversed the previous president's administration enforcement of federal conscience laws against the state of California for a state abortion mandate. How is it that something can be a law, but someone can choose to enforce it or non-enforcement? You know, what is there to keep a check on that, the enforcer. Right. I, I think this is something that's been going on for a while um, with the federal government, which is a refusal to enforce the rule of law uh, when it's inconvenient for your political constituency. And sadly, again, we support the actions of uh, the current administration when they're right. We oppose their actions when they're wrong. Sadly, there's been a decision at the current uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services uh, administration to really not meaningfully enforce a conscience of religious freedom, at least in these two cases, uh, particularly with the University of Vermont Medical Center, where there is a clear conscience violation. The University of Vermont Medical Center was in a, had a real pattern of coercing or pressuring their medical professionals uh, to be involved with abortions. And the Justice Department filed a lawsuit that lawsuit was withdrawn by the Justice Department, and I'm sure with the consent of the current administration. So they're not doing their job, at least on this issue, at least in two instances, and that's a real problem. We need to ask them to be accountable. Well, and you you spent time at HHS. So what did that process look like while you were there, if someone were to file a complaint? Sure. Um, when a complaint's filed, there is an initial inquiry. There's initial reading of what the complaint uh, says, and there can be a determination as to whether uh, the complaint should be uh, investigated. Uh, depending on the seriousness of that complaint, the seriousness, the seriousness of the violation of the civil right, the alleged violation of the civil right, uh, or, or the uh, conscience or religious freedom law, uh, it can be escalated. If it's a major case, if it's a significant violation that impacts a lot of people, or particularly egregious, it, it goes from a regional office, there's about, at least uh, as when I was there, there were about eight regional offices covering the country enforcing civil rights in healthcare. Uh, if it's a major case, it goes up to uh, Washington, D.C., where it's further reviewed and the investigation uh, will be uh, uh, run uh, usually in concert with both the Washington, D.C. office and the regional office. So these complaints, every single complaint, this is something else that your listeners that are medical professionals should know, every single complaint is should be generally, and I would presume still is, taken seriously. It's an administrative complaint. We hope to get to a world where folks can file lawsuits if their conscience rights are violated. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, but these, co these complaints are taken seriously, and that's another thing that folks should do. If their conscience is violated at their healthcare system and their workplace, they should file a complaint with HHS Civil Rights. You know, there's, there's a lot of times I think people can feel like they file complaints and uh, they, they just go nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, when HHS gets these complaints, they, they do that review and they look into it. At some level, are they referred to the Department of Justice or something for further action? Is it something that's resolved within HHS? What would the ideal outcome look like for a legitimate complaint? Right, usually complaints and there's, so when there's a complaint and there's an invest, there's a decision, first a complaint's filed, then based on the merits of the complaint, there can be a decision to uh, investigate. Um, if it's really egregious, that complaint can, that investigation can be broadened. Um, usually that's all done with an HHS. There's another scenario uh, where uh, HHS may become aware about a, an egregious civil rights religious freedom violation because of the news or a tip or word of mouth, what have you. And they'll do something that's called a compliance review. Will they investigate the hospital or the university uh, or the medical system? Um, either way, normally, that is all done within HHS. If it's extraordinarily serious violation, uh, it will be done in consultation with the Justice Department. Usually the hammer that HHS has when there's a civil rights or religious freedom violation, the hammer that they have that they can ultimately threaten is to withhold 
um, all uh, HHS funding to that institution. So if it's a doctor's practice, that means um, they are no longer receiving uh, reimbursement for you know Medicare, Medicaid, or Medicare, Medicaid patients. If it's a state, a massive part of their budget is their HHS funding. And so when California violated uh, federal law by mandating abortions and health insurance plans, ultimately HHS withhold $200 million in funding. That's a lot of money. So because that hammer is so big, usually when a determination is made by HHS that that healthcare entity is in violation of federal law, federal civil rights, religious freedom law, they say, you know what, we're gonna comply, we back off. When they don't, that, that, is ref that complaint, that investigation is referred to Justice Department and Justice Department sues, which almost never happens. Okay, Lewis, let's take this down to something that affects most of our listeners, sure. who are not medical professionals. Why is it important for them to be concerned about religious freedom and freedom of conscience and healthcare? Right, the church exists again to evangelize. We exist to share the love of Christ with others. And so as a, a dear friend of mine, uh, at the amazing Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom, one of the most amazing organizations in the country, said, we have to defend our religious freedom rights, but we also have to exercise it, um, which means we have to evangelize, which means we need to do that uh, in our healthcare decisions. We have to, as we say, live our faith in our healthcare. As a consumer uh, with the healthcare products we choose to purchase, as a patient with the medical professionals uh, that we choose to uh, patronize and we choose to receive care from, when, when it comes to the hospitals we choose, we should be thinking um, about the fact that Christ is king and he wants me to include him in every single decision uh, that I'm making. Uh, as a friend of mine said, to have a Catholic worldview in everything uh, that we're doing, including in their healthcare choices. And so we need Catholic individuals, Catholic families, Catholic mothers, Catholic fathers to choose preferably Catholic and pro-life healthcare. Uh, we need medical professionals that are building up Catholic healthcare institutions. The more the body of Christ can come together, uh, the more we can turn um, our country back to God. That reminds me of a, a story that one of our speakers told this morning here in Orlando that a patient gave him uh, some Catholic book that later led to his Catholic conversion. Mm. You know, so from patient to doctor, which That's I thought was exactly it. remarkable. So that right. seems to tie in with what you're saying. Uh, uh, I think patients may underestimate their influence on the whole process as well. I mean, just to kind of second Lewis's point, it, the times that I've gotten to witness or be involved in us losing ground in religious freedom and health care, you know, Catholic hospitals not living up to, to their core beliefs and things of that nature. It usually happens in the back room with like 12 doctors and maybe <laughs> one guy speaks out and he gets overruled. And it never hits the news and there's not much you can do except be prepared to have those conversations and do your best. The thing that I think patients don't realize is that patients command quite a lot of attention, whereas if a patient files a complaint, uh, that will be reviewed and discussed, and patients have the, the power of the purse, kind of, if they can go across the street to another right. hospital. So I, I would not hesitate to encourage patients, if, if this is important to you and you see something, to go ahead and file a complaint, because I bet you it will be actually worth more than if I did. <laughs> so here, here's a big picture question. It came up yesterday in our CMA board meeting, and, and, and that is, how can payer systems be set up to protect doctors like us, Dr. Dr. Chris Andrew and I, who want to practice according to our faith, and options may shrink to do that. Is there the possibility or the option of a, quote, parallel system or Benedict option? So that's a wonderful question. We absolutely have to do exactly what you just said, Dr. And how can we do it with the state of current accrediting organizations? Wow, that's, that, those are, so, Three things come to mind. I love that and that you're so dead on. So three things come to mind to me. I think the first is, again, the body of Christ coming together, Catholic medical professionals with entrepreneurs to, again, live their faith in their health care. Um, religious freedom is freedom to love. So the more that we have Catholic clinics that are reaching out to the margins in different locations, uh, multiple in each state, uh, ideally, many per state, right? That's, that's one track. Actually, actually showing what the love of Christ looks like in healthcare through Catholic healthcare institutions that are really Christ-centered. That's number one. I think number two, when it comes to the payer systems, I think medical professionals and particularly physicians have such extraordinary influence, particularly at the, at the federal level, yes, but at the state level, it's crazy in a good way, particularly when it's ordered to the good. And when you all get together 
with your legislators and say, how do we create the space within state law to ensure that conscience and religious freedom is respected, or even that, appropriately so, faith is buttressed, right, as a, as a really important value within civil society, within that state, within our community. We're going to place a premium on, on every community, including the faith-based community. Um, at the state level, there's extraordinary opportunity there. Um, I think the third, the third thing for folks to think about, to your point, doctor, is alternative accrediting associations um, if your state uh, accrediting association is just taking a position that's just completely opposed to our Catholic faith, you know, essentially trying to push us out of, of yes. healthcare altogether, which is what's happening right now. Pro-life and particularly Catholic healthcare is, tr is being pushed out or they're attempting to push us out altogether. So those are the, th the th three things. Are there alternative ways of accrediting that respects faith? Uh, are there ways that we can get together with our state policymakers? And can we band together uh, to show the love of Christ in healthcare on the margins? Well, you know, honestly, you you bring up some really good points, and I'm so happy to have you here. I know I I was reading an article some time ago in the New England Journal of Medicine where uh, Dr. Emanuel, who's one of the secular bioethicists, said that if if you are not okay with what is medically okay, you should get out of medicine, more or less, related to abortion, euthanasia, etc. But all the more, I think the battle lines have been drawn such that we have to band together, as you've said, and try and take, take action at the local level. Right. That's right. When, when we think about conscience and religious freedom, we're ultimately talking about the freedom to love. People of faith, people who are uh, steeped in moral and religious convictions, they go into health care because of their moral and religious convictions that I must care for my neighbor whether that's because of an obligation from God or an obligation of, of the natural law that's placed on their hearts. If we destroy and eradicate the very thing, the very heart of people that drives them to risk their lives, as we saw during the pandemic, to care for others, if we eradicate love, if we eradicate conscience out of healthcare, what will we have? Dignity will be erased. But if we increase, if we value, if we uh, uh, you know, explode religious freedom, conscience rights, will increase the value that we place in the human person, will increase human dignity, will increase love and health. Lewis Brown, that was a phenomenal summary of what we're really up to. This was an outstanding interview, and I think it's only augmented by the other stories. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for supporting us here on Dr. I Dr. love what you guys are doing. You guys are wonderful. So, and, and these listeners, they're the real deal. Thank you so much for supporting. <laughs> Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Lewis. Well, I'm back here on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Stephen White, who's the Chair of Healthcare Policy uh, for the Catholic Medical Association. Uh, and Stephen is going to talk to us about what's going on in conscious and, uh, and religious liberty uh, and the like here at the CMA. But to begin with, Stephen, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, maybe for our listeners, if you could tell us just a little bit about you and, uh, and who you are and what you do for the CMA. Sure. Well, I'm, uh, from a medical perspective, I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician. I've been in practice for roughly 40 years, so I'm aging myself. Hopefully some experience brought some wisdom. Um, and I'm currently in practice in the Daytona Beach, Florida area. And I've been in the CMA. My first CMA meeting was in 1995, and I knew I'd keep coming back. Wow. It's, an it's been an amazing journey, and I hope it's not near an end. I really, my area of interest was healthcare reform. So, you know, we really developed the Healthcare Policy Committee and from that got involved in a lot of these issues, particularly as you know, and we want to talk about today, conscience protection and religious liberty. But I also serve the uh, CMA on the uh, healthcare subcommittee uh, of the USCCB, which is a real privilege and, and an exciting, mm. you know, a once a year, of, twice a year event for me when we come out of COVID. Right. It's all been virtual, but uh, the CMA has, um, rise to the point where we now have two positions on the USCCB and, and you know that's very helpful. For Pretty me. amazing I mean I'll bet a lot of our listeners I'll bet a lot of CMA members don't realize that they're represented uh, at such a high level within the you know the USCCB that's really an honor. It is an honor privilege. So tell us a little bit about what you do for the CMA. So as healthcare policy chair what I do is I coordinate actually about six subcommittees that address a number of issues, uh, medical clinic issues in their development, uh, healthcare policy. We're very well connected over the last really two decades uh, with the healthcare policy folks in uh, Washington. Grace Marie Turner in particular at the Galen Institute is very close to us, so we have a voice in Washington on healthcare policy. But we also cover topics uh, regarding uh, 
mental health during the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. We have um, uh, a doctor out in California, a psychiatrist, who's developed uh, relationships with about a dozen dioceses across the country to address that issue. But we're very, we have been involved for two decades in conscience protection and religious liberty, and, it, and it's been an uphill battle, but we're staying in the battle, and I see some light at the end of the tunnel, Chris. Well, that's good news. Well, uh, as we've talked on this episode with Megan Craft and with Lewis Brown about sort of what's happening in the world, you might say, at the moment, maybe give us your perspective on where we stand at the moment uh, and then where we seem to be headed. So maybe that's the advantage of uh, being older because over the 25 years, well, the 40 years that I've been in practice, I mean, I have seen, you know, an assault on medical judgment, if you will. Mm -hmm. let's, just, let's just not even include yeah. uh, conscience protection or religious liberty, but medical judgment is being imposed on physicians. Remember when you were in training? Because you look like you may be somewhere <laughs> near my age group. Never, <laughs> never practice medicine by a cookbook. Right. Well, it's gone to going to a cookbook, and if you don't abide by the cookbook, even with regard to medical judgment, then you're canceled or you're marginalized. Now, in terms of conscience protection, as, as we also interpret it as Catholic physicians, you know, the moral ethical issues has, have just become so overwhelmingly infiltrated by the culture of death, and now they're trying to impose that on us. So there's no question over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a concerted effort to, to take that right from us. And I think listeners might be shocked to know we're not being alarmist when we say that. Because if you're watching network news and going about your day-to-day -day life, you might think that sounds a little sensational. But the reality is, in a very subtle, sometimes not so subtle way, those protections are being eroded. And to your point, maybe a, a few years ago it was, which antibiotic I can use? Um, now it's, you know, what am I allowed to say and not say? Uh, and what procedures am I forced to do and not do? But we're not being alarmist at all. There is reason for concern. Serious concern. In fact, it doesn't look like the Equality Act will be taken up in this session, but the Democrats, the Democratic Party, certainly wanted to take up the Equality Act, and, and the Equality Act would have absolutely pulled the rug out from underneath us, and we would have had no recourse because they even excluded um, our, our ability to go to RIFRA, or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So that's on the horizon. However, strategy and we we have to rely on our uh, attorney friends for the strategy because so much of this takes place in the courts as you know chris right. very little is getting done in the legislature legislature mm. now we tried for a decade to get the um conscience the federal conscience protection act passed and supported that and worked in washington it went nowhere because there's so much division but what um several of the uh, law firms that we work with uh, particularly alliance defending freedom mm. decided a couple of years ago we just need to leave Washington for the time being and go out into the states <laughs> um, because this battle can be taken to the states as well. Uh, and great success and reason to be very optimistic at this point in, in, my, uh, in my opinion is that this year in Arkansas and in Ohio, and in Ohio we had the support of our president, Michael Parker, who was very influential uh, with the governor there, we got comp comprehensive conscience protection, not only for, for physicians and allied healthcare professionals, but payers, health systems, all providers in healthcare comprehensive conscience protection in those states and we're working very hard with ADF and the CMA and a coalition of groups including the CMDA, APLOG, ACP, mm. disability groups in about a dozen other states next year to try to get similar legislation passed. So if we can establish a foothold, a beachfront if you will, uh, in six, eight, twelve states, even if the Equality Act was passed, we'd have, we'd have set a precedent is my understanding from a legal perspective, and all of this could go into the courts and be battled out. But, it, but it's gonna buy us some time. And, and I think what we're gonna see, honestly, Chris, because we're also looking at, at engaging patients now. This just isn't about physicians right. and professionals getting their rights protected. Right. We want patients' rights protected. And what, what, if, what if your wife wants to go to, a, to, a, to an OBGYN that doesn't participate in abortion? Or you wanna to go to a family physician or an endocrinologist that isn't doing transgender hormonal therapy? Right. Um, you have that right too. So it's, it's really a two-way street. And, and having been in this so long and seen a lot of dark moments over the last decade, mm. um, I'm very encouraged by the fact that we got this 
this through two state legislatures this year. You know, here at the annual meeting of the CMA, we're blessed this year with a large number of medical students and resident physicians. And as I talk to them, they've got very real concerns. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to choose certain specialties for fear that they'll be forced to do something that they find morally objectionable. I just don't think we would have had that conversation 20 years ago with residents and medical students. No, we wouldn't have. And, and, and on that point, for those that are listening to us and are still in training or considering what field they want to go into, um, the CMA is where you need to be mm. because we're very well aware of this. And we have at least three legal groups, teams that are ready to team up with anybody that gets, um, you know, their constitutional and civil rights are, are taken from them. Uh, and right now they still have that privilege because we don't have any act that imposes it upon them, but a lot of them don't know what their rights are. So they need to know their rights, mm. and then they need to be with the CMA so that we can defend and protect their rights. So don't make your decision based on fear. Right. Let us help you choose the profession and the vocation that God, and especially that God is calling you to. Mm. That's a great point. You know, we, we talked uh, to a palliative care physician who moved to a state to take a job, and the day before she started, they made physician-assisted suicide legal there. Maybe she wouldn't have chosen that state had she known that was coming but to your point the CMA is the place to be and quite literally a plug for this meeting you know I think the annual CMA meeting is the best thing you can do uh, it's the best medical meeting I ever get to attend and the number of people that I get a chance to just shake hands with and have a cup of coffee and say tell me about what you're doing uh, and they want to know what I'm doing it's networking sort of at the next level you might say uh, so if you're listening, come to the meeting next year and every year thereafter. Well, maybe in the couple of minutes that we, that we have left, Steve, if you'll share with us, where do you see things going in the immediate future uh, when it comes to, to religious freedom uh, and protections for conscience? So in the immediate future, you know, we, we need to mobilize and we need to collaborate. One thing I've learned in the CMA over the years in an area of interest that I've gotten involved in because of my health care uh, policy interest is we have to begin collaborating in a very, very effective and coordinated fashion uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ and others. We're working with um, some uh, Jewish and Coptic physician groups now that you know can come together with us, but not only physicians and not only medical professionals. We're collaborating with legal professionals, bioethical professionals, administrative hospital professionals, in the Catholic circle, I like to say we need to come together as the body of Christ mm -hmm. so that the Spirit can really work through us. We've had organizations over the time I've been here, Chris, that have done great work in this realm, but they haven't been together. And now we're coming together and we're going to be united as the body of Christ. And, and I just see, I love to, I, I love to tell people uh, to remember, I like to remind people that John Paul II saw a new springtime. I hope to live to see that, but I, I see some light. <laughs> wow, that's remarkable. Satan, if you're listening, get ready, because we're coming. <laughs> the <laughs> well, gates of hell shall not prevail. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining us here on Dr. Doctor. Thank you for your great work, and we look forward to hearing back from you with updates on all the great successes Fantastic, on the way. Chris. Thanks for having me. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, and I don't know if anybody else has heard of COVID, but Tom, you've got a, a COVID trivia question related to the vaccine. I know, something so esoteric as, as COVID. So, poll showed by religious group, which group had the highest vaccination rate? White evangelicals, white non-evangelical Protestants, black Protestants, white Catholics, Hispanic Catholics. Coming in at the lowest, 57% were white evangelical Protestants. So the answer to the question, the highest at 86% were Hispanic Catholics. That's very interesting. I thought so too, uh, especially when we talk about healthcare inequities, that the Hispanic Catholics had the highest rate and we were worried about, you know, Hispanic people not having as much access. So that, that was fascinating to me. Secondly, if you group all American Catholics together, whatever, you know, flavor we are, um, did we have a higher or lower rate of vaccination than agnostics and atheists? This one didn't surprise me. No, because if you think this is the only life there is, you're probably more likely to get vaccinated. That's what Vaccines the data showed. So all Catholics together, 82% higher than any of our co-religionists in this study, uh, or our non-co-religionists, I should say, 84% for agnostics. And if you were sure God didn't exist, you were 90% likely to get 
a vaccination. So let's move on. What's the, we, we brought Chris back into the room for this one. Chris, he, he's safe now. What are the top three takeaways from this episode? You know, it was another great episode, uh, as I think we all knew that it would be before we started. But Lewis had so many terrific things, as did our other guests. I think the first one for me is this idea, and, and Lewis actually said it, religious freedom is the freedom to love, to love you the way that you should be loved. And that's just a great definition, I think, of religious freedom, don't you? Yes, yes, absolutely. The second one is uh, you need to know your rights as medical professionals, whether you're an optometrist or a podiatrist or, or, or a surgeon, you need to know your professional rights in your state. They vary greatly by state and they are changing by the minute. Uh, And then last, but in no way least, we need to live out our Catholic faith, and we need to do it through our healthcare decisions. We're called to evangelize, and one of the ways we do that is the way that we live, and the healthcare decisions that we make is a big part of how we live. So we need to be Catholic in everything we do, most especially our healthcare decisions. What was most impressive to you about the episode, Andrew? You know, I really like hearing from Megan again, and Steve's always so good. You know, the the biggest thing is that we are in this together, and, you know, Lewis mentioned several times living in community. I've grown so much through my time with the CMA, and I encourage anybody, if you feel like you're an island, you are not, reach out to the CMA and lean into that community because it is, it's empowering. And those of you who are not in the medical professions, you can have a profound impact on your physician, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, etc. Well, thank you for being with us to this fun to put together episode of Dr. Doctor, your award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And please share the good news, if you will, of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And for those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, check out our website for bonus links and information in our post for each episode. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're signing off until your next episode of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.